on the Bible. Um, and so, so the questions that we're going to ask in here are going to help us. Uh, you're actually going to answer these questions. We're going to kind of see um, which of these questions you answer the most, and then that's going to help these guys know what to what to kind of address and talk to, talk about. One of the things that we're going to try to do is um, when we get into the the next several questions is depending on you know which one wins or whatever, whichever one has the most votes, we're probably going to ask somebody in the crowd to kind of maybe represent that answer. And so this way there can be a little bit of a dialogue. Like why, what, what's the thinking here? So here's the next one. I think it has to do with what you see on campus. Yeah. So here it is. On campus, the most common view of the Bible is uh, it's ancient literature that is, that is beautiful but not inspired by God. Um, the church curated it and edited it over time to suit its agenda. Um, it's a book of ancient Near Eastern myths, or it's good, but there is not one way to interpret it. So again, we're asking, what do you hear on campus? What do professors say? What, do, what would you say you, you most like most often hear? And we didn't really give a, a, a real positive answer, because we're going to get into that later. But we want to hear, what are some of the more objective objections we hear about the Bible. And this one is going to allow us to have these guys maybe answer. Um, yeah. It's good, but there's not one way to interpret it. So, that looks like that one's going to be the winner. Uh, who would be willing to maybe stand up and, and share... Uh, an answer for that, or what? What do you? What would you mean by that? Or maybe how have you heard that expressed? Anybody? Maybe we don't need somebody to answer that. I can speak. I mean, I can even just stuff we've heard a little bit. Yeah. Is the idea of kind of like? Um, let me see. I want to make sure I'm seeing right. It's. Good, but there's not one way to interpret that. Uh, we've heard some people even talk about this idea that it can be, you can kind of suit it to your purposes. You can make it say anything you want it to say, and so um, that people can kind of grab a hold of it. And what it means for you, it means for you. What it means for me, it means, hey, I'm glad that it means that for you. I'm glad you find that meaning or that purpose in it. Um, but but that's not what I need. That's not what I see. Or when I when I read it, I read it for this. Those kind. Of, that's that's the way that I've heard this this idea kind of expressed by students and stuff. But. Okay. So how would you how would you guys how would one of you want to take a stab at answering that? If someone were to kind of express that to you or, or say that to you, what's what's something you would say to them? I mean, the reality is. <clears throat> We live in a time where objective truth is pushed back in general. The concept of, of truth is hard to come by, probably in a lot of people's minds. And so to say something that was written at best 2,000 years ago, and then even farther back, up to 4,000 years ago, um, can somehow be authoritative for our lives in the sense that you can trust it. You can read it, that Scott and I can both open up this book and understand what the author was trying to say, and both agree on that. And the reality is we all know there's different denominations, different sects within Christianity that can't even do that. Two Christians have a hard time with that sometimes. So even Christians kind of give way to this idea that maybe there's more than one interpretation. 
to a certain tech. So it doesn't surprise me that on college campus, uh, when objective truth is already pushed back against, and there's so much division within the church based on some of these texts, that we would say, yeah, it's a good book, but it can be interpreted a lot of different ways. I would add, um, don't hear that answer that there are, there's a, a lot of different interpretations as there's a lot of different good interpretations. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, there's a guy who works for the Society of Biblical Literature. His name's Rome Dyke. He does a lot of translation work. And he, he said in a lesson I was just listening to years ago, he said, every good heresy comes from the Bible. And I think that's true. Um, what he means is the misuse of the Bible. And so what we've got to be careful that we don't do is we don't come to a conclusion from this idea that says the Bible is good and there are so many different interpretations. The conclusion can't be, with, uh, with I think any good logic running behind it, that therefore we don't interpret it. It's therefore we interpret it well and we learn to discern what is a poor interpretation. And then whenever you get down to it, by and large, the church historical will have at most two to three interpretations on very important doctrines, and they are, they are like millimeters apart, and they're arguing over the minutia most often. The church isn't arguing with itself, well, in this text it said that Jesus resurrected, and we think that what you should read is that he didn't. And so this can be a misleading accusation. Yeah, there's tons of interpretations, and most of them are pretty poor and poorly thought out. And so just because something's been misused doesn't mean we don't learn how to use it well. I'd say, you know, one of the things we say, just it is true that you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say, but only if you ignore the basic rules of interpretation that we use on any other text that we read at any other time. Um, so if you, if you read the Bible, paying attention to the basic way that you read any other book in the right way, which there's nothing magical in the way you read the Bible, but if you read it in, in the same basic way that you read a textbook or the same basic reading uh, way you would read poetry when you're reading things like the Psalms or whatever, then there's not a billion ways to see it. There's, there, you can't make it say whatever you want it to say. You can only make it say what it says. And so that's, that's kind of what I would add to that. This one, this, I want to add one thing. Um, this is kind of the overar- an overarching piece just about even whether you want to call it interpretive theory uh, or about the Bible, is that um, right now that could be said about any book. Like, it's not just the Bible that, 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 that's being uh, questioned. It's, it's, it's going back to what Justin said, the concept of truth or the concept of objective truth or the concept that anybody is speaking anything other than words to articulate their own agenda. Okay? And what will happen is, especially in the college environment, that's even the coolest way to say stuff. Right? Because you're supposed to talk about power structures and authoritative language, which kind of creates this biased way of looking at the world, which kind of feeds their own colonial uh, imperialistic perspective, right? Like, that's what you're supposed to say when you're in college. Um, and, and I think that that whole mindset, just the more that you begin to think about it, and so there's a, there, there's a famous philosopher years ago that really pushed this agenda that everything is kind of like pushing an agenda. And that's what he kept arguing. Everything's pushing an agenda, pushing an agenda. And he was critiqued one time by saying, you, you do realize that if everybody has an agenda, then ultimately it means that we really can't know anything. And yet that doesn't seem to make sense, does it? 
right? There has to be. And so somebody critiques him and he basically says this, you do know like if you're always looking through stuff to try to find the agenda and you keep looking and you keep looking, like the only reason why, and here's a great thought, it's C.S. Lewis who says this, the only reason why a window makes sense is so that you can see something on the other side. But if you just always keep seeing through everything, like looking for an agenda on top of an agenda on top of an agenda, he said this, it's kind of deep, you never really see anything. Does that make sense? You have to stop and look at an object sometimes. And that's where I would say, to grow up, you will most likely have to then say, like, I know it's complicated, but in the end I have to land somewhere. And that's kind of what you're saying, Drew. How do you explain how then so many people line up? So if you want to say everybody's got an agenda, how do you explain how so many people with divergent financial, ethnic, racial, historical perspectives, how do they all line up if it's just about an agenda? Like, the theory about everything have an agenda, wow, I wonder what their agenda is. Mm-hmm. See, it just it, it, it is self-defeating, philosophically and logically, it's self-defeating. And I think that's good for us to, to, to just think through. Okay, next one. This is where it's getting closer to you. If someone were to ask you, or me, okay, if you're answering this, if someone were to ask me how we got the Bible, I feel like I could explain that fairly, fairly accurately, even though I trusted I wouldn't know where to start, or honestly, I've never thought about it. What would you, what would you honestly put there? on somebody to to because 33 of you say you could answer that fairly accurately so I would like someone <laughs> Justin to, did it 32 times <laughs> and then Ryan Hughes did it the other time I would like um, not as a like whoever stands up and, and does this is is going to be awesome um, it's going to be awesome but he I would love for it to get get us started because I would love for these guys when I when I th- thought about this Q and A, it's this question that I really thought about. I, I wonder if if and, and it looks like most of you got it, so this is awesome. But I wonder how many of you really can defend where like how we got the Bible and all that. So I would love for somebody to get up and, and how do we get the Bible? What would you put? You just need one. Yeah. This one. Out of 33. Under Can I say, like, what I think, like, where people are coming from when they answer this? Like okay. this? Yeah. Okay, so I think that, like, for a lot of us, we, like, grew up going to church, and so we, whenever we think about, like, where did the Bible come from, what we automatically think of is, like, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so, like, that, I think, is the starting place for me, where I'm, like, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit across all of these different people, and... Then it's like, and now, here it is. And so, it's kind of like, I feel like there's like, where it's like, there's like this gap where it's like, well, I think like, they put them together, there's like, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and then they're like, Conventions where the church got together and they're like SB, SBL, ETS, like, yeah. Orange Conference. Okay, so CIY. Yeah. So mm. I think, like, how the Bible came to be like, inspired by God, like 
written by God, so to speak, but it was at the Council of Nicaea. Was it 322? Or did I just make up that number? 386? Is that correct? I don't know. What is it? That's what I was trying to say. Nicaea is 325, but it's not that council. This gets worse. Yeah, but that's a big council, but yeah, it's not that council that that's right through. Okay. Yeah. I'm wrong. No, but you're going in the right direction. You're going in the right direction. Honestly, you're not crazy wrong. You're very, you're very, very good. It's kind of begging the question of like, but men still had to decide what was the Bible. So, like, we have to... Like, like, I believe, like, the Bible is, like, sure. holy and, like... I, we taught Jared this a few weeks ago. Let's see if Jared remembers what we said. That was good. 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 Uh, so, kind of playing off what David was saying, I think there's an idea on campuses that, at some point, the Catholic Church got together and was like, these are the books we want in, these aren't the books we want in. But we talked about a school theology plug, everyone should go, um, that the way that we determine what was in the Bible is, um, crap, you put me on the spot. Apostolic Well, authority. you raised your hands. Yeah. <laughs> you put me on the spot by calling on me. Come on. You asked me, I raised yeah, my hand, okay. volunteered put, to speak with information, and so, crap. <laughs> what, what was I thinking? Just talking about the New Testament. We're talking about someone who is an eyewitness or knows an eyewitness. I guess that would be apostolic authority. Uh, somebody else help me. Sound like the Bible. But okay, they're harmonious too. Harmonious. Yes, we need some harmony. All right, so you guys, how would you answer this? How would uh, somebody take a stab at this? How would you answer? Somebody walked up on campus and said, "Hey, how do we get the Bible?" In five minutes, what would you say? I would say I need more than five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta go to class. Uh, I'll see you after class. I got homework. <laughs> Skip your homework. You have something? I probably try to hit the highlights. So the Bible was is a combination of history that was recorded at the time. Uh, that it was made. Um, that's what chronicling means. Uh, the writings of the prophets, as they were inspired by God, recording the things that they were told to tell to the people at that time, uh, assembled by uh, by men of God acting in prayer and under the direction of God, which we can quantify by the criteria that they used. And then if they want to do the Catholic accusation, point out that the Catholics and Protestants don't even use the same Bible. So how did the Protestants get their Bible from the Catholics? And uh, that's probably... What do you mean we don't use the same Bible? They have the Apocrypha. Okay, so they have a middle section. Right? Yeah, they have the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha. Yeah. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Yeah. No, you're, that's that's fine. <laughs> no, you nailed it. The 66 books that we have, they have. Yes. Yes. Okay. And they even view the Apocrypha, the Pseudepigrapha, as a bit of a second tier yeah. layer uh, type of scripture. Um, yep. Um, so there's the, the reason I would say I want more more than five minutes is because there's so many subtopics to this. Um, so I'm not going to I'll, I'll let somebody else take inspiration um, in inerrancy. I'd like to talk about how we got it. Like, how did you get it in English? Because really, that's the question that we're arguing against. No one's here saying, you know, I just can't trust my Greek New Testament. No, we're all <laughs> saying, I don't think my ESV is worthwhile. And so, in effect, what took place is the, the church did not determine what books were authoritative. They recognized what books 
were inherently authoritative, um, and that can expect inspiration and inerrancy. Um, and then as... Real quick, like you guys get, that's actually, that real quick, it's just a, a, a good huge. word. Um, <laughs> determining and recognizing, that's like a key right there. Yeah. So just making sure people are tracking with that. So they weren't saying, we decide that Matthew gets in. They say, there is no good reason that we couldn't, like we have to have Matthew, because Matthew has always been a binding document in the life of the church. And it gives an accurate representation from eyewitness testimony of the life, death, uh, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we got to have Matthew. Gospel of Thomas, the church, it's not like we found it. And, and the Discovery Channel is like, dude, we got to tell everybody the Gospel of Thomas. They knew about the Gospel of Thomas. They said it was garbage and that it has nothing to do with Jesus. And so they rejected it. It's, it wasn't a secret gospel. The church knew about it. And so this is a process where they are preserving the canon and, and trashing what to them would have been no better than Max Lucado. That's great. It might even be somewhat spiritual. doesn't really help us, and it's certainly not from God. Um, and so they're, they're adding these things up, and they're making copies. And, and in the ancient world, to, to write things is not cheap. You got it, like, not everybody knows how to write. You have skilled scribes that, that, are, that know how to do this. And so they, it, it costs money to make copies. And it just, like, they, they made copy after copy after copy after copy of these things. And they were transmitted. And then they start to be translated into other languages. And so whenever you get all the way down to this ESV sitting right here, is you have the Bible translation team working from what's called a critical edition of the Bible. So they have a Hebrew copy of the scriptures of the 39 books of the Old Testament, and a Greek copy of the 27 books of the New Testament. Where'd they get that? That didn't survive. They're working from ancient manuscripts. And so every time we find something, you mentioned the Dead Sea Scrolls. The King James Version, as beautiful as that Bible is, it came out about 400 years before we even found the Dead Sea Scrolls. But we look at this and we're like, wow, we have a full copy of the book of Isaiah that's old. And, it, and what they're doing is they're looking for the oldest possible copies because that gets me closest to what the original author would have written. And it, it kind of removes a lot of the scribal error that comes with just copying things by hand over and over and over. Explain, explain what the Dead Sea Scrolls are Dead Sea Scrolls were a, um, a series of scrolls found in a number of caves in Israel, right on the Dead Sea, in the early 1940s. So this was huge because we found these really old manuscripts that... Now we have older copies of texts that we were translating Bibles from. And now we know that we're closer and closer to, uh, to what took place. So the reason our, our oldest texts that we had of the Hebrew, Hebrew Bible were like 900 AD. Okay? And we had like the Greek Septuagint, but still that's not, that's, not a, that's in Greek. And so we just have to trust. This, what, can, I just, can you guys just trust that there really was a, an Isaiah? That was written in 600 BC. Well, what's our oldest manuscript? 900 AD. Okay, that's a lot of trust, <laughs> right? That's a lot of trust. Years, yeah. A little shepherd boy is throwing rocks in a cave, um, and we, uh, the, literally not Drew. Um, we would we invited you, you wouldn't come. I know, my bad. But the three of us were there at the cave not that long ago, so uh, the other three of us got a chance to go. Um, and this little boy's throwing rocks in this cave, and he hears this. And they go up and they look and they find these clay pots and they find a copy of the of an Isaiah scroll that was before the time of Christ. Like I think it's I think it's dated three or four hundred BC. Okay, when they began to look at it and I mean it's there. This is a very the Dead Sea Scrolls are lots of scrolls, but when they were looking at certain copies of Isaiah and other copies, the copies that they found were almost identical to the ones that we had 
in 900 AD. Almost identical. And so they went, oh, okay. So we might be able to trust <laughs> that there was an Isaiah, if that makes sense. So, and that, that, that's happened a lot of times where people have said, I just don't believe it. I just don't believe it. I just don't believe it. And then we find something and we go, oh, okay. So I think it might actually be true. So I, the number of times when we were traveling in Israel and they would say, we, they did not believe that Jeremiah was a prophet or so-and-so was a king. And then Uri, our guide, would take us and he'd say, and then they found something right here testifying yeah. to that historical There's no fact. biblical record, or there's no extra biblical record that King David actually, ever actually existed. And then in the city of Dan, on the very north side of the country of Israel, they found what's called the Tel Dan Stella, which is a little piece of rock, and it says, from the house of David. And so they're like, crap, I guess King David is real. Those, those Jews didn't just And make for that those of you that are going, well, how do they know that's that David? Because the, the, the document describes the David of the Bible. Okay. Yeah, and it's actually from a foreign king who conquered David. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, could you, just, and then I'll, I'll shut up. Could you switch to Lagos there? I have some facts and figures. I don't know if they show up. Scroll to the right. Can you do that? Let me say something real fast. Hey, if I were to ask you, hey, like, who decided that George Washington was the first president of the United States? Because I'm Canadian. And I just think that's an agenda. <laughs> right? No, but seriously, I want to ask you, like, who decided that? Who decided that George Washington would be the first, or, or was the first president? Like, I just think that's dumb. You're just trying to, you're just, it's just an agenda. How many of you would go, no, actually that's called history? Anybody else? Okay? So you would just, you would argue history. And that's kind of what we're really getting at. So one of the examples that I like to use on recognize versus decide is I, I, I going back and looking at what the early church was doing? Um, I use this example. I have four. I have four children, three biological, and then one not. Um, if I were to give you the not, not that we don't love Serge, but if I were to give you the if I, probably more than the other three clowns. But if if you were to look at if I were to show you the DNA, my DNA and my wife's DNA, and say which ones are biological, and you could you could literally look at the DNA and you could look at Matt Mac Matt just by the names Matt Mac Max and Sergio. Um, <laughs> How many of you, right, let, let's pretend you could do it, like when you're determining which are mine and which are not mine biologically, how many of you think that what you're doing is deciding, and how many of you think what you're doing is just recognizing what is? Do you see the difference? So when people say the early church were deciding, that's, they, they didn't talk like that. They weren't trying to go, hey, which one do you like? Hey, which one do you like? Which one supports our agenda? Because we're imperial colonialists. That's not what they're, no, that's not what they're doing. Well, they're literally saying, where do we see? That's what, what Jared was trying so hard to explain. Um, that's, no, but I'm serious, dude. Like, I, I'm not, you got a couple more years, someone will like you. It'll work. Um, oh, I love, you know I love you, bro. Yeah, you know I love you. Um... <laughs> It's, they are trying to, they are trying to recognize what's there, not decide what's there. And that's a game changer, because most people think it's decide. And, and, and they're not talking like that, or even thinking like that. And it's good, Catholic or Protestant for that matter. Yeah. That is a, that is a significant, significant, significant difference. These numbers encourage me that what Drew has in English here is working from an accurate version of what, say, Matthew or Luke wrote, or even further back than that. 
These are the numbers of manuscripts, ancient manuscripts on animal skins, on parchment, on, on scrolls that we have of all, and we're, we're lining them up and we're saying, okay, I think because of the number of manuscripts that we have and because of their age that we can reasonably assume that this is what Isaiah wrote down. So in the Hebrew Bible, we have 252 ancient manuscripts that we can work from in just Hebrew. And then you can see the categories break down. Scott, click on LXX. LXX is the Greek translation of the New or the of the Old Testament, and it really it's it's the Bible that Paul quotes, by the way, in the New Testament, and 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 we can we have a lot of copies, two thousand two hundred and sixty three copies, which when we find that it helps us know something about the Hebrew behind it, mm-hmm. and so look, it's building now. We're we're now up to almost twenty three twenty four hundred copies. Look at the Greek New Testament. Almost 6,000 copies of the 27 books of the New Testament that we have. And so we can sort through them and say, well, I have 152 copies of of John 3.16. And two of them disagree with these other ones. And they're they're newer. They were like from the 400s. And we have all of these, and particularly say John, uh, I think it's 17 or 18. There's an old one that goes all the way back to maybe just about 30, 40, 50 years after John wrote the gospel. I can see what John said. And so the New Testament has a lot of copies. Therefore, I believe that what we're working from is pretty accurate because if you go to the next one, just ancient manuscripts, people don't really question Homer, but he doesn't have a lot of support. (laughs) Even worse, Plato's Republic, anybody saying we need to throw that away and doubt its authenticity? Most people aren't. We only have seven copies of that. And then you look at all these other ones. The Gospel of Thomas, that, oh man, the church buried that. Do you know why we don't have very many? Because the church made sure that no one kept reading it. And it's like, you don't tend to find things that people throw in the trash. You tend to find things that people revere and preserve. And so, we have 6,000 manuscripts or partial manuscripts of the New Testament because the church didn't decide at some point later on, from the beginning, these were their books given to them from God, and they preserved them, and I believe that what Drew has... By the way, in terms of inerrancy and inspiration, I don't think English Bibles are inerrant. Um, It's only the original... It's only like what Paul wrote Romans on that's inerrant, and I think that Drew's got like 99.9% right of what is actually... (laughs) And even even what we would say is different. These are not theological variants. These are my... Pretty minor textual variants. Jesus and, Christ versus Christ Jesus. They'll, they'll flip the words. And it's not even like people are trying to hide it. There's a guy named Bruce Metzger that has a book called The Textual Commentary on the Greek New Testament, which lists every variant in every passage of the New Testament. So you have full websites, people devoted to trying to spell the myths of the New Testament, like they're finding these contradictions or these textual problems. No, no one's trying to hide that. We're very clear. These are the variants, and you're realizing it's word order or omissions of words that are not key to our theological center of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done on a historical basis and a theological basis. And so I think that's... We probably need to move on, but you can even look at footnotes in your your Bible. John 5.4, go look for it later. It doesn't exist. The church realized that, oh, we found older copies of John 5, and John 5.4 is not in there, so the ESV took it out. Other translations took it out. And um, the the long, the last like eight nine verses of Mark's gospel, the church, like your ESV will say this is not in the earliest manuscripts. We're not hiding it. And so personally, I'm awesome. con- I'm convicted that it wouldn't. Um, how many how many of you that was helpful? 
<laughs> like, and, and just seeing the numbers was huge. Okay, so here's this one. If anything makes me nervous about the Bible, it's that. Some of its rules seem, at, uh, seem so out of touch with our world today. There seems to be a number of places where it contradicts itself. Um, parts of it appear to conflict with science or history. It places demands on me that I'm not comfortable with. I think it's great, but I'm not sure it's the only way to understand God. So, be honest. I mean, this is what we want. We want to kind of get a feel for, like, what makes you nervous about the Bible. So those two seem to be winning out. Some of its rules seem to be out of touch. is the first one on the left there. Some of its rules seem to be out of touch with our world today. Oh, nope. The other one now is, uh, it places demands on me that I'm not comfortable with. Those actually can be quite related. Okay. So you see the two answers? Yeah. I think they're, I don't know, related quite a bit. Yeah. They're hard to read. Some of its rules seem out of touch with our world today. It's it's demands. It Could places I, demands on me. I'm not comfortable. Well, I do want to talk about those. Could I hear real quick, like when we say some of its demands, you don't have to say specifically these are the demands I'm uncomfortable with. Yeah. But what are what are the demands that that you think of that our people are uncomfortable with, or what are the the rules that seem out of touch with reality today? Um, I had a youth minister whenever I was about fifteen uh, have us read passages about. Uh, basically, women cannot hold powers of posi- or positions of power. They there's all these things that they cannot do, and I think it really damaged a lot of us. Okay. okay. Just in, uh, I think a lot of it was the presentation of it. <laughs> no, um, that's, a, but... that's a really no, but that's a really good point. Wait, using the truth as a club or something like that. Right. No, you're very that's very true. What else? What are, what are people, when they say the demands of it or the rules of it don't match up with today, have a hard time, what what are people thinking when they're when they're saying those things in general? I just think as far as demands go, like, it kind of demands that you be perfect, and I think at times it's just overwhelming and, like, makes me uncomfortable because it feels like I fail so hard sometimes. Okay. Okay. Anybody else want to throw Kelsey? I was just going to throw out that I think that this sexual ethic revealed in the Bible is really controversial in our uh, context, and I think particularly as it relates to homosexuality. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, those women's stuff, sexuality, kind of the high moral standard, all those things are kind of thrown in there. Let me let me talk generic. Let me just say something kind of quickly generically about, or over kind of in general about this, but do you know what other culture has thought that the world, that the Bible's uh, rules and demands seemed a little bit of out of touch with like society and today. Um, every other culture in history, um, because because no matter at what point you are, and this is I, I love what Keller says. He says uh, if we unless we assume that there's such thing as a perfect culture, I think we would all agree that every culture is imperfect to some degree, right? Every culture at any point in history has a flaw at some point. That means if you have something, if you have some sort of writing or standard that happens to be perfect, that means it's going to be out of touch with every culture, at least at some point. 
There are a lot of cultures who this is incredible. This has been incredibly out of touch. This whole idea of love your enemies and pray for them is so out of touch with what their culture has brought them up to believe. This whole idea of turn the other cheek, this whole idea of treat others as more important than yourselves, and and yet we wouldn't go, you know, we wouldn't go, whoa, whoa, you don't get to just change that because that doesn't fit your culture. We go, no, no, this is a standard. And your culture is designed to conform to it. Um, and so, yeah, it's going to seem out of touch because we are sinful human beings. And so every culture throughout history has had problems with this. We're not the first one. And so when it comes and it speaks against our sexual culture, don't be, don't be shocked by the way it speaks against our sexual ethic unless you assume that our sexual ethic and everything else about us is perfect. In that sense, then you should be surprised that this counteracts it. But, but if, you have any, if you have any inkling that our, that our culture might not be perfect, then you should expect this to, to be out of touch with our culture to some degree. And, and so that's how I would speak generically to those things. I think it's really important. I don't know, I don't know what, if you guys would add anything. or, or get It was out of touch with its original recipients. Yes, it was when it, on the day it was written, as Paul was like finishing Romans, it was out of touch with the yeah. culture. Husbands, you know I mean? love your wives in Ephesians 5. Unbelievably controversial in Ephesus, where wives were property. And Paul said, yeah, I'm going to mess with you a little bit. Wives submit to your husbands. Everybody's like, everybody in Ephesus is like, yeah, we got that. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church. And all the husbands in the church in Ephesus were like, are you serious? <laughs> so from day one, it's, it's, it's rubbing against the grain of culture. I mean, think about how Paul talks about why the law was written. You know, the Levitical law, which nobody could keep perfectly, by the way. It was written because of sin. It was written to highlight the sin of humanity and how to relate to a holy and perfect God. And so, I mean, even in the Old Testament, you know, something we struggle with even more than the New Testament, um, it was written for the purpose of pointing out how non-perfect we are and our whatever culture we're in actually is. Uh, I mean, I also think of, you know, as you're speaking, First John, what you, know, you read this, man, I don't obey those 613 Old Testament laws. I don't obey the New Testament commands that even Jesus places on us. Um, Jesus says, be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. So you struggle through that. Um, so what does that say? I mean, 1 John 1, 8 literally says, if we someone says, I have no sin, the truth is not in them. But when you do sin, confess those sins, and we have one who's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all sin. The reality is, the scriptures know <laughs> the reality of, of this life and before the return of Jesus. We're getting into theology now, but... It, is there almost this expectation of you're being made mature, you're being made complete, and you're declared right by Jesus once you put faith in him, and yet there's this distance between that ultimate perfection we'll have. And so the process is when you sin, you acknowledge that, and you actually repent of that. And now you have the Spirit of God within you to recognize temptation and to obey. That's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You actually have the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, to be able to see the law, see the requirements, and actually do it. That's Romans 8, by the way. <laughs> Very good. Okay, I think we should take a little break. It's a question I'm going to ask, uh, and let's see. I'm going to have to do this because I don't remember what it, was, what it is.
So I want to ask you guys this first. When you read the Bible, when you read a commander story in the Bible you don't like, what's your natural inclination? Is it to get nervous and not tell anyone? Is it to assume uh, it wasn't meant for me? Is it to explain my way out of it? Or is it that you you believe it, but you wonder if you have to follow it? Well, how would you guys answer that? Okay, so I'll, I pick one of those. Well, I'll just say... <clears throat> yeah, you have to pick one. The key phrase being natural inclination. Yeah. Not that we go, this is what I do all the time. Yeah. Right. Or yeah, this yeah. is what I recommend. But like in my gut, if I go, like the kind of the natural tendency in me would be... Uh, probably explain my way out of it to find a reason why that's that's my natural or uh, maybe get nervous and tell him I'm really good at getting nervous about things so that's, <laughs> that's what I would have it would be yeah, yeah. it would be get nervous and explain my way out of it <laughs> okay what, what do you guys do when you when you encounter a I mean commander story? if you were to give me a, a fill in the blank I would have said uh, study the crap out of that for the next however long it takes yeah. me to feel very confident about it. That's, okay. that's my natural go-to. So probably the... Yeah. This is, we, I can't hear that. And I'm like right next to them. So, <laughs> uh, probably the get nervous and to fill my nervousness and study well. So I'm not... I don't, I either go talk to these guys, like, hey, have you read this? What do you think about this? Okay. And then go study it for myself. So okay. I guess get that's nervous true. and kind of not talk about it. But probably, <laughs> I'd be explain my way out of it. Yeah. Okay. You want to wait and answer this one later? Sure. Okay. So right now they're saying explain my way out of it is kind of their their go-to, most popular. But several several of the others, of the two of the others, are getting some votes. So really, I mean, this question, I mean, obviously, you can talk about anything, but I, I'd love for you guys to talk about what what you do. When you when you encounter this, Justin, you kind of gave an explanation already. This is how you see it. This is what you do. Um, Jim, what do you think? Um, you know, it's interesting that going back a little bit to uh, what this young lady was talking about in terms of when you hear somebody say something and, man, it threw us off, right? I can think of a lot of times in which people have said things or I've even read things in the Bible and it's, okay, that's just weird or that's just not, doesn't seem to line up with some things, right? Um, an earlier question you asked was, how was the Bible talked about in my home, and, or growing up? And my, the Bible was actually talked about. My, my parents grew up unbelieving families, okay? So my dad comes from 10 kids, only believer in the family. My mom comes from 7 kids, only believer in the family. So uh, Christianity was not something my family just kind of did all the time. We're Canadian. So not very many of us are going to heaven. So it's uh, we're, no, but truly, we're like we're really, really nice. But it's a not it's an it's an un 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 Christian world uh, or country. So it's very, very, very unChristian by its uh, by its uh, its culture and everything. But my family, the Bible was a big deal. And so when I, it's funny because when I when I my natural inclination is that if the Bible is saying something, wow, like I'm I'm really off. Where my culture's really, really off. Like that is my, that is probably my first approach to it. Is if I had, if you had to ask me, like, what's right, me and my four 14 year old friends, or this book that's 2,000 years old? Like, I never went, that book is so dumb. Cause I was talking to Trevor and <laughs> he was saying that, you know, like, I mean, do you know what I'm saying though? Like, it just, it never really made sense to me that me and my three 16 year old friends, could somehow understand all of the world. Does that make sense? 
So I, I really did come to the Bible with a bit of a, I may not like it, or I don't understand it, but in the end, I think I'm going to have to deal with it. And personally speaking, I would have a really, really, really hard time with a book that came to me and said, what do you want? What do you want? What, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? Because you can do that. I would literally go, really? Like you're looking at me to try to decide everything? I'm, I'm 32. Like how would I be able to decide everything for everybody at every point in time for all of human history? Like that just seems nuts to me. And so it's a little bit of the kind of my natural inclination towards it isn't just, hey, you know what I think men or women or this is what I think about sex. It's almost like, it's, for personally, I get a bit of a kick out of when the Bible's kicking me. Right? Because then it feels real to me, if that makes any sense to you. Like it's all of a sudden like, yeah, you almost need to offend me to get my attention. Because if you're just going to tell me what I already know, and I mean this nicely, I don't need you. <laughs> but do you know what I'm saying? No, I think that's why we love college, right? Because people are telling us stuff we didn't know. And man, I really, really needed that. And so what you said about the Bible always being out of sync, that's when I go, oh, okay, I should probably listen. As opposed to, because my 14-year-old friends were wrong looking back, right? And so are my 32-year-old friends. And so are my 40-year-old friends. And so is Rob Bell. So you have all these different... <laughs> I had to get that in. Um, but it's interesting because Rob Bell literally said, I just can't be out of sync with culture. Essentially, if you, if you hear what he wrestles with, he, he gets so wrapped up in culture. And I just, I find that to be bizarre. I, I literally go, but that's when we decided we could like buy people and sell them. Like culture told us we could do that. And everybody thought it was normal. And it was actually like Christian abolitionists that said, yeah, we really can't do that. Like, <laughs> I'm so afraid I'm getting it wrong anyway. I, mean, I have enough of Drew in me. I get, I'm so afraid of getting it wrong anyway. I, the Bible, when it really pushes back, is some of the first times I feel alive, spiritually speaking. So, If that sounds interesting to you, one small piece of advice. You can do that by never doing theology alone. Do yeah. it in community. Because Jim doesn't come, again, back to Jim can't be Jim's own authority. He comes to that position with pooled wisdom, not ignorance, yeah, yeah. pooled wisdom and pooled submission to the text. Because when I say my knee-jerk reaction is to explain my way out of it, what I'm actually saying is I am putting myself in a position of authority over the text. And if, it, if I have to move, that doesn't work. I'm going to move the Bible with fancy you know, wordsmithing. And if you would rather do what Jim's saying, do theology together. Anybody else have a similar uh, approach? Does that kind of resonate with anybody? Or is that like, ooh, that's not me, or that's hard for me to do, or that's, I haven't seen that really, that example model. Either or. Does it resonate or not? Anything we want to add to that? I don't think so. I think they're letting their phones do the talking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I will say, um, I, had a, I had an interesting conversation with, with a friend who I, is a brother in Christ, and, um, but he 
we were talking about Romans because we're studying. He was asking me what I was learning, and he brought up a couple things that he thought were challenges for him, and and maybe contradictions, and this and that. And as we as we as we started talking more about it, I realized like there was this, and I I felt this too. Like sometimes I approach Scripture going, okay, this doesn't. Let me see God if you can convince me of your way because this doesn't seem right. You know, I remember walking around Boomer. I was listening to the Bible. I was trying to read through it through the year, and I was listening that day. And we were at Judges 19 and 20. I don't know if you've read Judges 19 and 20 recently, um, but I literally stopped in the middle of the sidewalk and was like, "What the heck, God? Why is this in the Bible? This is nuts!" And then, and, and in that moment, I had this visceral reaction that I didn't, you know, I didn't really think through. And then I started thinking about my reaction, and the reality was, I was approaching the Bible going, I know, I, I have a pretty good idea of what should be in here, and that shouldn't be in here. And so, I had to go, whoa, this has been in here for thousands of years, and uh, it's been ordained to be in here. Who am I? Kind of a thing. And so, that that was my, my first real rea- understanding of, like, I'm approaching the text sometimes with, I got this figured out, God. Let me see if you have it figured out. And 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 uh, like Jim said, there is something real about encountering something that goes, nope, you don't have it figured out. You're out of touch. You're you're you don't see your ways are not my ways. And and when the Bible does that, it does become very real. The majority of people, though, this is where it goes back to the, another question. The majority of people, if they say. I don't think the Bible's right. Whatever it might be, sexuality, um, women's roles, men's roles. I mean, God, God, God has a problem with all of us, and so how how that is laying out. I, I've never met. I, I mean, very, very, very few people who say um, God's wrong. They say the Bible's wrong, right? Which is which really kind of goes at the heart of the matter. Do you believe the Bible is the Word of God, or do you believe it to be the Word of man? And so, whenever we go, I don't like what the Bible says about X. And they still have like a God thing in them, right? They still have a God desire in them. What they're really saying is, I, I love God. This is Rob Bell, actually. Yeah. Like, I love the idea of God. I just don't like the, the word. Like, the word is the problem. That becomes the issue. And so if you don't like what the Bible says, it's most likely because you don't believe it to be the word of God. Very seldom do people are like, I think it is totally the word of God and I still don't like it. It, it, the dividing line really is how much is God involved in the, in the making of the Bible. Okay. Here's the next one. Rate these things. Uh, everything in the Bible is to be taken literally. So it's strongly disagree or strongly agree, and you can there's a scale, I believe. Um, everything in the Bible is to be taken literally. The Bible has no errors in it. The Bible was written by men. The Bible was written by God. What do you mean by the Bible? No. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. No, Jared. Everything. Everything is the yeah. One meaning strongly disagrees, five meaning strongly agrees. They shush. No, shush. This. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One doesn't have to exclude the other. Oh, okay. Boom. You could figure that out. Check all that.
mean it wasn't a trick question? What's that? You mean it wasn't a trick question? is very strong. I'm all strong. You're all strong. I'm all ones and fives, baby. One or five. Maybe I can do Noah. I will place one or a five, and I can do Noah. I think that we go after which one is this? Which one do you want to say? Well, the bottom two can be done together. I think we can do all three. So the top one, the second one, the bottom one. You know what you need? You give us Literally, you have 60 seconds. No one's putting right. He'll say, I want to put it in the next 52 seconds. All right, it's true. We'll share with Jerry. Oh, yes. Earmuffs, earmuffs. How about each of you answer one of these? Okay. Okay, but like in one minute. Do we get to pick? No. Popcorn. I'll take the second one. I'll do the first one. I'll do the third one. Who wants the first one? Or the second one? Raise your hand. Get him out of the way. The first one. Or do we do the first one? Yeah, one minute. You do the first one. Who's doing the second one? What? Second one. What's the second one? The Bible has no errors. You've already talked about that. Yeah. I'll do you do that one. The Bible is written by men? Sure. The Bible is written by God? Just said it. Okay, do the first one. All right, we're going to go one at a time here. One minute. Ready to go. Everything in the Bible is to be taken literally. Uh, that is yes and no. Jim hates when people go in the middle. Um, God, the Bible says that there is no God. Go sit with Jared. The Bible says, uh, the Bible said God's, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God said that Jesus is a lamb. Okay? Who wants to take those texts literally? Raise your hand. <laughs> what Jim would say probably is he wants to take the text on the text terms. And so you interpret poetry like poetry. And you interpret narrative like narrative. You interpret um, revelation the way it was meant to be interpreted as they would have understood it, which is figurative language. And so Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's not ontologically a lamb sheep. Okay? It's a theological metaphor. How many is that? 48 seconds? You're done. Okay. But when it speaks, but when it says literal things, Jesus rose from the grave, we take it as it, we take it on its terms. There are historical things, there's not poetic things, there are proverbs that are. Genre is a big deal. Okay? Second one, Bible has no errors in it. Okay. Uh, your Bibles do, sorry, but they're really good. Um, again, what Paul wrote didn't, what Matthew wrote didn't, what John wrote didn't. Um, and and when, when we talk about inerrancy, we're not saying that everything in there, like the Bible records lies, like we all know this. So it can't be that everything in the Bible is to be believed as if it were true, like there's, there's lies in there. But everything the Bible claims and teaches is true. That's and and in Romans, Paul got it right. And then you got to go back to how Justin's talking about reading the Bible, and you got to take into account okay, there's metaphor, and some of this is literal, and some of it's um, more like hymnody, and so we read it as like poetry, and then some of it's 
propositional logic, some of its narrative. You've got to read all of it the way that it's intended to be read, but what the Bible teaches is true. Okay. Well, I'm going to add, so I'm going to give you extra time. Sweet. The, the, the scribe, when you say the Bible has lies in it, clarify that again. Yeah, it records kings lying to people. It records... It records yeah, it records Judas sneaking off and being kind of a snake. But thank you, because Jesus got crucified. So, it records deception. Okay, there you go. Okay, Bible was written by men. I would put strongly agree five. Absolutely, absolutely Bible was written by men. There is no scripture that was handed to us directly from God, with apologies, not apologies, to Joseph Smith and to Muhammad. Um, <laughs> it was, uh, <laughs> but he still, uh, well, Moses still had to hold the tablets up while he did it. Um, so, no, you can see, as you read through the Bible, you can see that people are writing these, and their own personalities are coming out in their writings, and their own theological themes that they uh, find valuable and significant, and their own vocabulary, like these books are, are, you can tell, are specifically written by human beings with their um, human vocabulary, their human personality, their human traits and, and, and things that they like to value and lift up. All of those things are in there. So yes, the Bible is absolutely written by men. Not bad. Okay. The Bible was written by God. Strongly agree. Uh, uh, in light of the fact that the, the people that were writing it down um, were flawed, the uh, necessary need for God and his word to remain true means that he's the one that breathes into it. And therefore, it is all men, all God. Um, and he is the one sustaining it, he is the one inspiring it, and he is the one perfecting it. If you emphasize one... Sorry. If you emphasize one and de-emphasize... The other, you lose something in Scripture. And it's so what did men do and what did God do. Yeah. They both played a part. Great. Okay, next question. Oh, this is the last one. Sweet. last one is, I'd like to hear what you guys think about Kanye West is a Christian. There's only one right. Coexist stickers. What Christians should believe about homosexuality. Uh, what uh, happens when we die. Or following God when my heart is not in it. So far, Kanye is winning. <laughs> With two votes. Serious? Only two votes. Okay, here we go. Now we're coming. Oh. It's like a wheel. That rolls. Okay. <laughs> I'll just mess with that. He's <laughs> not voting. He just found a fidget spinner. Keep this up. Uh, <laughs> Consider this question. I'll start. You, you start. 
All right. So we'll we'll maybe tackle the first two if we can. But we got six minutes. How about we just do the first two? All right, we're going to do the top one. Following God when my heart is not in it. Hey, the vote, one out. What? No. You got thoughts? Nope. Okay. Anybody? Anybody here want to take that? Uh, the Bible is pretty clear about the heart, that the heart is deceitful above all things, actually, which is hard to think about because we like to follow our hearts. It's kind of our uh, predisposition in our culture. And so um, if our heart is deceitful above all things, there are going to be times when we don't feel like doing certain things, um, primarily following God. Yeah. Anyone not feel like going to class occasionally right now? Okay, you followed your heart, you'd flunk out of school, your parents would stop paying for your education, and it wouldn't go well for you. Um, if you just follow God when your heart feels like it, it's just not going to go well for you. Yeah, the, it, is, it is common, I think, to even feel almost like that is hypocritical. There is this high value on being genuine and authentic today. And I want to be, I want to just be real. And if this isn't what I'm feeling, then it's, there's almost like fake for me to, to continue this charade, to, to show up to church on the days when I'm not even feeling, which, but as Justin kind of said, nobody thinks that you're a hypocrite for going to class tomorrow, even though we all know you don't want to, right? And nobody's going, that's fake of you. People are going, no, that's very grown up of you. That's, that's mature. healthy. That's mature of you to do something that you know is right, even when it doesn't feel like the right thing to want to do. Um, and I would say that following your heart being in it is the ideal. This is something we ought to be. I want to have a kind of heart that delights in doing what God wants and following. It is the ideal, but it is not the determiner for whether I do or not. So um, that I, I strive after that, just like in marriage. I strive to be someone who is in love with my wife and does things for her out of a sheer love for her. Like, I want to be that guy. Um, but that's, that's not the reality of marriage. That's not, I don't always wake up and feel like that. The, the phrase I use with students when I'm talking to them and they're struggling with this is, um, what do you do when you're not feeling it? You take out the garbage anyway. Um, and I think that's, that's the marriage metaphor. When I'm not feeling it, I'm still going to show my love to my wife by taking the garbage out, even when I'm not feeling it. And it's the same with, same with my relationship with God. I do these things, and so often we think um, my body should follow my heart. So if I really feel it, then my body can do the things that I'm supposed to do. So often, that, that can be true, but a lot of times actually the flip is true, that my heart follows my body. That as I begin to do the right things, my heart begins to fall in line with those things. Um, that's why C.S. Lewis said, if you're really struggling to love someone, the best thing you can do is pretend as though you already do. Pretend like you do love them, and then you'll find your heart kind of falling. I think that's, that's true towards God. So. One of the rules I love to use in almost all areas is I ask the question of consistency. So if I believe that I should follow my heart, then that should be a principle that everybody should have, correct? How many of you guys like OSU football? Imagine that you go to the game, you buy the tickets, you're excited about them winning, and then every player just does what their heart tells them to do that day. <laughs> right? You might even wonder, I think that's what they are doing. But, <laughs> no, but imagine, imagine if everybody said, hey, listen, like I, how many of you, if somebody said, I don't want to do this, like I, I, my heart's not in it today. Like, by the way, professional athletes will tell you there are days their hearts are not in it. 
Okay, that's why what these great teams all of a sudden lose one day. It's just hard to be on all the time. It's just hard. Okay, how many of you, if the team just basically said, you know, we just we decided to do what we wanted to do today, how many of you would look at that team and go, no, that's what we love about you. You would go, listen, like that's not like there's no pride in that. Like there's no like I don't want to be a fan of a group of sixty-eight guys or whatever and coaching staff that aren't out to win, that aren't out to be focused on winning. Like, it's game day. Get up for it and figure it out. I mean, how many of you get that? How many of you, see, that says that you really don't believe in following your heart. You believe in following your heart when it's advantageous for you. Or you believe following your heart where there's an ulterior motive. At least that's when I begin to, I love my follow my heart when I've actually got another agenda. But I really don't mean follow my heart. I mean be selfish. Is what I, what's going on inside my own heart. That's why the best teams are actually the teams not only are the ones who show up every day, but who their hearts are also in it. Yeah. They have this passion and this consistency. You hear some of the best players talk about the game they play as a job. There's a reason for that. Because they realize this is how I do actually make money. It is a job. If I don't see it as that, I'm going to stop coming into work. Because in the end, this is just a game. I need to see it as that. But then when you have the people who are passionate about it, that's why I love Psalm 37.4, which says, Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. So it's it's first like positioning yourself where what pleases me and what I do love. And I'm actually going to have to say this. And then eventually, hopefully, I'll feel it or vice versa. I delight myself in the things of God. And then he's going to give me the desires of my heart. Because now I've aligned myself with him and his will. You want to take a stab at Kanye? Not literally. Uh, <laughs> uh, Who is he? Figuratively. One of these other younger Canadians. I think so. But land Justin Bieber, baby. On a positive side, there are people hearing things about God or Jesus or thinking things that probably hadn't in a long time, if ever. So that's a positive. Regardless of where you personally think Kanye is based on your expert opinion of a guy you've never met, right? <laughs> He's, he is far better than Kanye East. He's <laughs> really helpful. So I, I've often heard the question recently posed as, what am I supposed to think about Kanye or what are, what are we supposed to do with Kanye? And I would say, A, let God judge his soul and B, let it play out. And C, treat him like you would any new convert and recognize that they are likely unbelievably immature and going to struggle with producing fruit for some time. And don't let them be an elder. Yeah. And so if, if anybody make it like a brand new convert and then tomorrow we want them preaching to people, I might want them to have one-on-one conversations giving their testimony. But I don't know if they're now a source of theological truth and wisdom. And so whenever someone comes up out of the baptistry at Sunnybrook Christian Church, I'm thrilled to pieces. They're not going to be in a position of leadership tomorrow. And so I put Kanye in kind of this category of a guy that has a platform, and thanks be to God that the gospel is being heard. That's kind of how Paul talks, by the way. He's like, I don't really even care of their motives if the gospel is being preached. That's one for our team. And that's great. And then in terms of, well, is he a Christian or not? It's never been your call. It will never be your call. It is God's call, and until then, I'll, I'll kind of keep an eye out for fruit. And actually, I'm probably going to be like next week going back to not caring about Kanye, so, because I don't know him. He's not part of my church. But everything, everything I hear about him seems pretty legit. Yeah. Like, I mean, truthfully speaking, like everything I hear about him seems to be in line with the gospel that I believe in. Yep. So, it's awesome. I would say... Justin Timberlake next. 
<laughs> right? Come on, Jimmy Fallon. Yeah. I would say, be excited about the possibility that there's someone who like is understanding the gospel and their life is changing. Don't be excited uh, in thinking that now we're really going to make some progress. Like, <laughs> like God was in heaven going, oh, finally we got Kanye West. Now I can start doing things. You know what I mean? Because historically, God has almost never used the Kanye Wests to move his agenda forward. Um, like the most powerful person on the planet being uh, Caesar when Jesus comes. And God's like, I'm going to use these like backwards fishermen. To change the world. You know what I mean? And so that's just not how God usually does those things. So be excited about that. Be excited about the people he gets to tell. Um, just just recognize that's not like, it's not like God was going, yeah, fine. You know, he's happy that's, that uh, that a lost person knows him, but not like, man, now I can do stuff. You know? So. I should say if, Shaquille O'Neal. That would be That'd actually be awesome. awesome. I'd love that. I love Shaquille. If you get too excited about the Kanye is coming to faith, what are you going to do when the Christian celebrities fall out? Are you going to like, go into a pit of despair every time a new person apostatizes? I hope not, because it happens pretty often these days. Just Charles Barkley. Yeah. His golf games. I don't even know who Charles Barkley is. Well, actually, they know him as an announcer. He's a golfer. Yeah. 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 Terrible. 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 So, real quick, uh, if you're new, uh, if you're visiting for the first time, we'd love to meet you. We've got some amazing cookies over here that we want to give you. And so I'll be over here in the corner. I'd love to meet you. Come see me. I'll give you some cookies. 